So welcome to the Quality of Mind Transforming Business podcast. This is where we explore the new game-changing understanding that can unlock new levels of performance, resourcefulness, and well-being in the workplace. Join us if you want to be part of the new breed of leaders in business. Join us if you're fed up with the conventional echo chamber. And join us if you want to be part of the new revolution in understanding how the mind works and recognize that we are more than just our psychology and that that can lead to better results. Hello and welcome to the Quality of Mind Transforming Business podcast series. And today's episode is a revisit to a conversation I had with the most wonderful guest, Katz Keeley, who for regular listeners um, would have heard us, we did a podcast which was what's behind great leadership. And it was all about the wonderful podcast series that she does on humans leading humans. Now, if you did listen to that, at the very end, we'd made reference to something which we now want to do a part two on. And we're going to point us back to what we said and then do what Katz has really nicely described as a bimble about that. So Katz, welcome back to the show. So good to have you here again. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's exciting. I like to do a bit of bimbling. Now, for, for those people that are accustomed to a bimble, what's a bimble? What are we in store for? We're allowing a conversation to emerge with having no agenda whatsoever. I'm a massive walker. Over the weekend, I walked 60,000 steps and I don't like looking at maps. I find myself feeling really resistant to maps. I like to bimble, which is walk with no particular aim, just to get wherever you get. And that's the right place to be. I've got a feeling I might bimble in most of my life. (laughs) (laughs) You're a professional bimbler. I am. I call it coaching, but I think I'm actually a professional bimbler. That may be (laughs) what I do. Uh, So yeah, all my podcasts are pretty much a bimble. Um, So the start of this bimble is going to be picking up on, on what we said. Now, to get the tiny synopsis is the podcast series that you do, which is, I will recommend it again, it is awesome, is called Humans Leading Humans. And what you've done is you've got some really industry-leading CEOs and leaders to come on and share three stories of where they really tapped into what I would call just that their heart-centered leadership, their authenticity, their even high quality of mind for people that know what that language is. And you've asked them to illustrate those stories. And there's, there's some wonderful things in there. And what we were doing last time, we're starting to get a little bit behind that. So what is the golden thread that these leaders are tapping into to enable them to be these wonderful leaders they are? And at the very end, we talked about the nature of the self. Now, I'm going to play that little bit now and then we're gonna bimble off it. Is there anything you'd like to leave people with? Anything else you'd like to say in in a succinct summary of this? Building upon what you said, I think the golden thread is that all of the leaders that I talk to, no matter where they're from, have gone through a journey of self-knowledge. And Ah. I think that's what gives them the strength and the courage to do what they feel is right. Mm, right. So that, that, that they've got a level of realization for themselves about the nature of what they are. And that has allowed them to be more, let's use that word slightly overused, authentic. Exactly. But it allows them to feel safer and then they, they can be in that aperture that produces create. Yes. Yeah. I call it being 100% themselves. Yeah. Which ironically is to me when you're not in the self. So... Uh, <laughs> But that, that, that's, for, that's for another podcast. So, um, oh my goodness, you can't leave on that, no? Oh, I can, I can. <laughs> oh, I so can, because that, that, that's the teasing element of what, what we do. And we could, have a, we could have a part two conversation if you want to dive into that, because that, that's a nutshell for me, is when we realise that we're not what we think we are, that we really become what we are. So Katz, what did you hear in that when you went, oh my gosh, I need to know more? What was it? that you heard? So I said where people can be a hundred percent themselves. And I think what you heard was 
being the person they think they are. So we have personal stories of what we can and can't do, what's possible and what's not possible. Um, and then there is the wonderful us, which is actually limitless. So, and then when you say hundred percent yourself, so on Wednesday, I had a very strange moment of collision where I was at Chatsworth house, which is this beautiful place in Derbyshire, uh, which is as quintessentially English and it's owned by the Duke of Devonshire. And I've known it since I was a child. But the reason that I went there this time wasn't to look at the mansion house. It was to talk to my friend Harley, who is the chief cultural officer of Burning Man. And there I was at Chatsworth House with Harley and Flash and Dana with their incredible lack of understanding or respect for what, for what Chatsworth has been. All they're looking at is, is a canvas for sculptures and for bringing children together. And so the reason I'm telling that story is because um, one of the rules of Burning Man which is just a canvas. It's literally a blank canvas. It's a desert. There's nothing there unless you take it. Is you can be a hundred percent yourself. Now that doesn't mean following the narrative that you tell everybody all of the time about who you are. It means doing really unexpected things because you can and because you feel safe and because you know that everyone around you is doing the same and discovering stuff about themselves. Like what was that? Um, so when you, when I say hundred percent yourself, that's what I'm talking about. Just being whoever you really are, whoever you can be, whatever your potential is. Yeah. Now it's so, it's so fascinating that because the self as a topic, as a, what is, is at the core of the work behind quality of mind, because most people, if you ask, tell me about yourself. Right. Let's, let's say you meet someone, tell me about yourself. They, they'll tell you their, uh, I don't know, their age, their gender, their location, where they work, their career, their background. They may even give you a few attributes like, well, uh, yeah, I'm quite funny or I'm a troublemaker or I'm a mum or this. That's what they'll do. That's what they say. Tell me about yourself. And that's generally who we think we are. We think we are this body mind, if you like. And we would say the self is, well, there's this, there's my body. That's the self. It sort of ends at the end of my fingers and and I, it's been with me for the number of years I've been on this planet. That's what we think the self is. And we learn that from about one or two years onwards, right? So tiny little kids don't have a sense of self. Um, and they, first of all, start referring to themselves in the third person, don't they? They will go, um, Piers's cup or, or Katz's toy. You know, they don't, they, they, they're struggling with this idea of separation and all that kind of stuff. Now. What is really interesting, if, I, if we, we flip forward now, is when we are really in our most resourceful, whether that's at work or at home, in our hobbies, in our leisure, we would even say, I lost myself in that book. I lost myself cooking or dancing or singing or in that. I just lost myself. I lost time. Oh, wow. Or you're with your friends and having a beautiful conversation. The self's not even there. Now, the self would then come back afterward and say, I did that. I, I, I cooked that meal. I, I, I did that dance. But the self disappears and then comes back and says credit for it. But it's the same, you know, listeners, you, you can, you can re recall this. You're, you're just in a moment, maybe you're looking at a beautiful sunset, you're doing something, you're just, or you're with, with your partner, and it's just a moment of pure presence. There's no self until one of you says, what a lovely moment. <laughs> right and you're like oh yes what a lovely moment it is but in that moment there's no self now this brings back to the question so what are we are we this bunch of concepts which i'm a this i'm a that i'm a this i'm a that am i a sum of my knowledge and learning or am i something else and this is what i point to is the case of mistaken identity all the, all the conceptual mind, that part of us that makes up rules and justifications and narratives, meaning seeking can do is point to this self thing. But what I'm saying, and in the work we do, we point to the fact that there isn't really a fixed entity that is the self. It looks like there is, 
it looks and appears like, you know, Piers is walking down the street, looking at the trees, but actually the Piers is just as much as a thought as any other thought I have. So the Piers or the cats or the self is actually a thought. It's not the thinker. Yeah. Now, what do you make of that? I suppose what springs, what springs to mind is I, I love this idea of I lost myself in that. Mm. And, uh, and I, I had a conversation the other day when they were talking about the flow state. Right. Yes. Uh, and to be a creative, which I am, which I believe we all are, I don't wonder whether our job title's got creative in it or not. Um, everyone's trying to attain this flow state trying really hard to get to flow. Yes. And she was saying, what gets you into a flow state? And I said, do you know what? I've got no idea because I'm not sure that I'm, I mean, I get into moments of different states, but in, in, I don't think that there is any time I can honestly say I've been in flow for seven hours. You know, people talk about this. I think it may be a myth unless it's just the way my brain works. I don't know because I am constantly pulling out of whatever it is that I'm doing to kind of look at it from a different perspective and then diving back in. So. Well, that, that can be flow, right? So flow, as you say, is, is vital to what we do because it's the output of our work in a way, because everyone wants more flow, whether that's in personal life or work, it's, it's a yeah. beautiful place, right? Now, first of all, let's just distinguish flow and bliss. I mean, they're just names I get yes. thing. So bliss <laughs> is just completely zonked out, completely no thing, just lose yourself completely, 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 no activity, just spaced out. Like you're in a flotation tank, right? Uh, completely nothing going on, which is lovely. That's also nice to have, but less useful at work because you don't get it. Yeah, I'd say that would, yeah, not, not happy. <laughs> we don't pay you for your bliss day. No. Um, but that is w w one, one place where there's no self. But the flow is the way I would describe it is the fusion between personal learnt mind, the conceptual mind and the impersonal infiniteness that we are. So let's take it in sport because it's quite easy to see in sport. So in sport, they do lots of muscle memory work around having the right movement of the legs and they'll do lots of things on how to pass the ball if it's football or whatever it is. And yes, that is learnt, that is practiced. But when they're performing, whether it's a tennis player or a footballer, there's moments when they'll just in sync with everything, then there's thoughts going through the system, but they're not really thinking, right? Ayrton Senna would say God was driving. You know, Messi will do something with the ball and the whole crowd, whether it's oppositions or home fans will go, whoa, because he does something just spectacular. Right? Yeah. Or Roger Federer will hit the ball from an angle where you're like, yes. really? And they're, they're just in that zone, in that moment. And there's something almost impersonal infused in their muscle memory and practice, which every human being watching that gets a hit off, which is why yeah. you get the, oh, right. So that, that's it in sport. It's a fusion of the two. And in work, it's the same. So in work, it might be that sometimes in the work that you do when you're being creative, you have to step back to go, hang on a minute, what are we doing here? Going back in and out. So that could be part of flow. Yes. Or it could be that in seven hours, there's going to be half an hour when you're beautifully in flow and the half an hour when you're keep thinking about lunch and, and what to do on the weekend. Or, I don't know what it is, but <clears throat> it's, it's, but I think f flow is that fusion of the yeah. personal and impersonal. So it's kind of the, the moment where all of the things that are just coming together without you hang, having to kind of consciously think about them. Yeah. Like, I guess. It's a conversation I've been having a lot recently about this idea of working hard or working smart and, um, and kind of trusting. I know for a fact that when I'm doing best at work, it's when I'm trusting my serendipity muscle. Yes. When, you know, it's like, I, I don't hundred percent, I'm not consciously thinking about exactly why this is working or going to work, but I know it will. Yeah. I totally know it will, so I'm going to do it. In those states, then I can achieve the impossible. Right. When you're uncertain that, going back to the create framework, is all about <clears throat> the environment in which you find yourself. If you're surrounded by people, and not all about, but I'm just thinking about various situations that have happened recently. If you're surrounded by people who 
trust and respect the fact that you can do that, that you don't have to rationalize every single thing and give data points for everything. And everyone kind of believes that something will happen. It will happen. The moment that you find yourself in an environment where the people around you, well, unless you're working on your own, of course, which is a different thing. If you're a writer, then that's a very different thing. If the people around you lose trust or start to feel uncomfortable or uh, start to question your ability to be able to make those intuitive decisions, and that intuition is to do with your experience, of course, and you, you, you're not actually... You're not actually kind of referencing all of the experiences that led to that moment where you know that this is going to work, but you kind of know it is. It's infused. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're, if you know, if you're at that point where you think, I know that we can do this and we, we can make it happen and this is what we have to do and people go, great, let's do it. And everyone's together in that moment. Everything sucks. You know, then you get to somewhere which is really fast and productive and efficient. Second that people start pulling away or questioning or. Yes. Feeling yeah. uncomfortable with that. But don't we, ask, don't we have to ask questions? Don't we need to really look at the data points? It's like, well, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you see, I, I think what you're pointing to beautifully, right, beautifully is in organizations, how much we don't respect flow and we don't respect what I call the impersonal mind. And instead, it's all about information over insight. Exactly right. right? And that's where the self comes in. So let's bring this back to the self because what the self does is it often is protecting and seeking. So let's say you're having a beautiful moment of flow in an organization and ideas coming out in the workshop. You're like, we're on this. And then, then someone, or maybe one or two people come in and go, yeah, but if we did that, wouldn't that happen? And then what about this? And what about that? And, and their kind of self comes in with all these kind of risk factors, right? And starts to squish what you're pointing to, which is just the emergence of, of some fusion of personal and impersonal. And they're in their, they're in their self mind now, which is kind of dictating some things that are, that, that, that need to happen or don't need to happen or whatever it is. Now, just to caveat this, I'm not saying when we're in flow, we become idiots and we start making huge risky decisions and all that kind of stuff. Because within flow, there is common sense of course. And, and, and rational thinking as well. So it's of not course. like you go, oh yeah, we're, we're just going to make an elephant that flies and put it up in the sky in London or something. So, but what people don't, I think, have a, a calibration to until they do is when that, what I call the aperture has contracted back into the self and they're constricting through their narratives and rules that to them look like, well, that's how it is, are getting in the way and constricting this emergence of new connectivity, new synthesis, um, emergence, an ability to be agile and adaptable, all the things organizations need that you work with them on left, right and center, right? And, and the humanness as well. And they can't tell when they've contracted because that contracted is normal to them. Yeah. Right. And when they, when they do expand a bit, they love it. And then their mind comes back and go, oh no, we can't be like that. Yes. Right. <laughs> so even when they do experience flow, they're not that comfortable with it. They, but when they're in it, they are, but then their they're sort of thinking mind, if you like, comes in and goes, well, yeah, it's all very well to do that. But have we considered this, this, this and this and this? And that have we considered this, this and this is not coming from flow. It's coming from their old narratives. Yes. And this is to do with the self, because the self's job is to protect, seek, resist. But we've just accidentally given it far too much credence and power. It's a useful utilitarian thing, the ego that keeps us fed and alive. So it has a role. I'm not saying it's, we, we, we need one, right? Obviously we wouldn't navigate in the world, but it doesn't need to have the big role it's been given. No. No, and you know, I mean, I think Dan talks about this a lot. You know, we are <clears throat> irrational creatures seeking rational because if we're rational and we work around data and stats, then everything will make more sense. And we won't have to be in a situation where we have to trust our intuition. Whereas actually we trust our intuition anyway. That's like, yes, it's, it's a way of, uh, uh, of avoiding the uncomfortable because you're not, people aren't comfortable with the idea of just knowing something to be true. Well, it's being something to be true because, and you don't have to go through 
every single experience you've had over the last 20 years to be able to come back to that person and say, I know it's true. It, it's an instinctive thing because it's all of the, all of the memories that you've had over the, all of the experiences that are actually speaking to you. But then as soon as people want to stop and start kind of really drilling into the why of that and getting into the minutiae and the statistics and the data, which by the way, is how most organizations are set up. Let's just look at the data, but let's figure out what we want to do with the data. And let's think about how people's brains react to the data. There's a, a really interesting thought kinds of research that's been done around storytelling, um, which is if you present statistics to a human, which in every corporate communications, every deck that everybody's ever, it's all about stats, 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 stats. If you present stats to a human, what happens is it, it makes one tiny little part of your brain light up, which is the analytical part of your brain. And so what that makes the individual do who's listening to your statistics, it's the question, is that true? Is that going to impact me? Where did they get those statistics from? That's what the analytical part of your brain does. And then there's stories. So you can take exactly those same statistics, data, in a story, surround them by emotion and memory and texture. And it makes lots of different bits of your brain light up. So actually you project a thing and you see that that could be a real thing. Um, and so, yeah, I think the seek, the sort of our obsession with rational and sensible and proof it's yeah. kind of absurd, apart from anything else, you know, the fact that the truth of the situation, which we all know, this is basic stuff, that people don't make decisions based on that data anyway. They make decisions based upon the way they feel. Right. And, and, and this is where it's so important that when we say the word we, people, we need to know what we're talking about. When we say, oh, people, who are this we, right? Which self are we talking about? Yes. Right? Now, because you're spot on right, the self that wants information and, uh, and the answer to the questions and all the facts and figures, there is, there is a piece of programming that we seem to have, particularly in our Western world in the last two, three hundred years, that likes that. So we feed it. Now, that is not what we truly are. This, this is the big uh, thing that people, it, it's a mind combobulation when you say it to people sometimes is that what we think we are we aren't right that is just our programming the the conceptual mind that's always seeking to categorize to understand to justify it, it's it, it's seeking in the world of concepts it's not what we truly are yet we keep feeding it so if you keep feeding it it's going to keep wanting it yeah now if instead we can go, because this is what you're talking to about, about with the storytelling versus the facts, how come some people can just come alive when you tell them a story and actually they don't follow the data when they make decisions? I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a famous book uh, Malcolm Gladwell did about dating and they have all these checklists of who they want to be, but actually the people they end up with are totally different. So this programming, although it looks like is us, isn't us. Mm. Now, if we can start to see that at one level, nature is living us there's not a self that's doing the decision making in the way that we think it is it's not a cat or a piss nature is living us and yes we have programming because you can see it because we're all slightly different right there's no programmer we aren't the programmer no. right there's programming but there's no programmer there's thinking we have but there's no thinker so what you then start to see is that most of our thought overlay, if you want to call it that, that we put over basic perception and sensation is an activity of consciousness that what I would call the self is a conceptualization, trying to find meaning and justification and narrative, but it's not that useful. In most of the times we use it, it's not that useful, right? Because it, it just makes up rubbish. I mean, here's a classic one. And, and, and what am I kind of a, Associate said this, or a friend of mine in the same area, he, he came up with this beautiful just way of saying it. It just, just tickled me. And he's American, so I'll put it in the American 
way vernacular he said that same mind that says we should eat a whole pack of potato chips two minutes later says what did you do that for right <laughs> now, is this the mind we're asking to trust with all these very important decisions about life it's that the same mind that doesn't know whether it wants a whole a pack of crisps or not yeah right and that's the one that we are trying to make control and boss us around no nature is living us we are part of nature right yeah. it comes through the self so when i do something amazing or when i do something useless yes they've come through peers right the bodysuit that is peers right the thing the avatar that looks like peers but it's not me right there's there's something living me now one of the things that it makes it look like is it makes it look like there's an app on the system that is the boss of all the other apps that is peers but that idea appears is just as much as a thought as any other thought I have, you know, whether I like broccoli or not. That's a thought. Do I like broccoli? Do I not? That's a thought. Yes. I'm a peers. That's a thought. But what we accidentally, invisibly do, innocently do, is think, oh, there's a peers here that needs to be creative, that needs to be loving, that needs to be clever, that needs to be not an idiot, right? So then we, we feed this self. And actually, going back to what we said at the beginning with when we lose ourselves, that's when that creative emergence comes through. That's when those beautiful relational insights pop out. That's when we, we are okay with the ambiguity and whatever, and we can love. And all those things is when the self is actually out the way. Yeah. I don't know what to say. I, it's that, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. And, and I suppose, you know, I mean, we're talking about, you know, school, the education system. Mm, yes. That's where it starts. So, uh, yeah. Right from day one, and maybe not from day one, maybe from year five, you know, from, from when you're five years old, you're told what normal is, what you can and can't do what right and wrong is, um, you know, everybody has to achieve the ambitious, you know, there's a whole set of, you have to fit in. What this self should be like. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Characteristics it's attributes. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, and, and there's this kind of deification of stability. When it's like, you know, what, why? What, what, who is stable? What is yes. stable become something that's such an amazing thing? Sometimes doing something that's really different in a different way might be really cool for you as a human being. May not be stable. You may not be fitting in the rules of your personal stories. Well, I'll take that stable thought and add to it because it's such an interesting point. So, what we've been taught to do is to seek. The things that we really value, which will be peace of mind, fulfillment, it's a sense of something, right? That, that you know, it's what we're all after, happiness, well-being, peace of mind. That's what we want stability of, right? Most of us are seeking that. We're seeking stability of peace of mind, put it that way, right? And we've been taught to seek that in something that is fundamentally unstable, exactly. as in our psychology. Our yeah. psychology, which, which creates our internal world and external world, is fundamentally unstable, but by, by its nature, right? It's an ever-changing thing, our psychology, right? Mm. You know, our internal and external worlds. But we've been taught that's where we find well-being and okayness. Yes. Right? And the reason we struggle and suffer in the world is because we can't find it there because that inherently is unstable. It'd be like seeking stability in the weather. Yes. Right? It doesn't happen. Now, the sky, for carrying on the metaphor, is stable, right? It is a space where the weather arises, right? And changes, particularly if you're in the UK, right? <laughs> Always. So what we think we are, what we're looking for stability in the weather rather than realizing we're the sky. So in, in the metaphor, the sky is what we are before the self, the capacity for awareness because that, that never changes, that never, that never comes and goes. Our capacity for awareness, the, our capacity for thought, feeling, sensation, perception, never changes, ever, whoever we are, age, gender, ethnicity, doesn't matter. That capacity is there. What comes and goes within awareness, within our content of thought, perception, sensation, and feeling, 
does come and go. Yet where do we seek our okayness and stability? In the stuff that comes and goes. Yes. Boom. And there's suffering and there's conflict. It's yeah. that simple. <laughs> Not easy to grasp because the conceptual mind will fight that, but it's that simple. Yes. And I suppose the question, being a doer, um, is, you know, the moment that, you know, all the, everything, I, all the research I read about the brain and how it works, you know, you have these whole moments where you go, oh my God, that's the thing. Of course that's the thing. Of course, you know, we're not rational. Of course we make decisions with our guts. Of course, all of these things that, you know, of course, we're going to be better in a world that's more psychologically safe, which means that you can be who you want to be at that particular moment in time. The question then is, how do you put them into practice in a way that you're not perpetually springing back to the machine that's been programmed into us since the very first day, if not before we stepped into school? Right. That's the question. So the que I, I, it's, it's a valid, valid question. And the way I look at it is the only way you're really going to shift that is through realization. Because when people see this for themselves, what I'm sort of trying to point to, when they see this at a, oh, no, not an intellectual level. Intellectual level gets you nowhere because it's just a self go. Oh, I understand that now. Yes, quite well. What does, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That does nothing, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> apart from be slightly amusing when someone thinks they've got it, right? Um, it's a realization that any of us can have. Actually, it's more likely to have people who, people who have more intellectual humility seem to get there faster because they yeah. haven't got the self in the way. But any human being can have this realization of going, oh. Now, what happens is we have the realization and then in a flash of an instant, the conceptual mind comes and talks us out of it or tries to justify it as something else. And before we know it, we're so we have this kind of aha. You know, you talk about the ahas, you kind of, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And you start to sense there was something more than the self. Then the self comes in and goes, yeah, I'll take care of this. Thank you very much. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> and then start, but it, it bangs us back into, well, of course, that's because of this, that's because of this, that's because of this, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, academia doesn't support this, therefore it must be wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Off we go. And then we have some more little ahas and we sense it again. And then we talk ourselves out of it. So the intellect is like a bouncer on this. It's like a gatekeeper. Yeah. Yeah. And science is struggling its little pants off with this because, I mean, 25 years ago, it came up with the hard problem of consciousness, right? Going, we can't find the source of consciousness in the material world. Yet it still hasn't really acknowledged that maybe we're in a consciousness first system, not consciousness comes from the material world. It still hasn't completely debunked materialism, although all the evidence now is saying materialism, physicalism, it can't work. Right, but you still got scientists going, well, I think it must be, you know. So science is pointing the wrong way, although starting to turn. The way we condition through our education, through our through the programming that we all innocently get, the way the ego seeks and resists, we feed it, we accidentally feed it. Right? We do. But that's the thing, because we're not aware. This is this is something that happens on so many levels of habit. Yep. And so you know, so I guess I've been working in one way or another in the, in the field I'm in now for, since I started my career in one, in one way or another, which is about how do you create work environments? And when I'm saying work, it's in the loosest possible way. So moments where human beings do things collaboratively, uh, make things collaboratively. How do you create environments in which people are more likely to stay in, and I hey, I, I, I don't know whether it's the right way, but are more likely to be in the state at which they're most productive, most efficient. Yes, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, eventually, the most creative, most all of those good things. And it keeps coming back to the fact that, you know, and I, and I love doing the podcast because actually for an hour, maybe an hour and a half, that senior leader has an opportunity and all of the time that they're preparing for coming to do the podcast. To really kind of look at their own stories and stop for a second and see what works and what doesn't. Now, I know for a fact one of my podcast guests um, I've worked with 
And even though she knows, she knows and she feels what the right way to lead is to create the environments in which humans thrive. The reality of how she behaves, and I don't think she's necessarily aware of the way she behaves often because she's in an operating model, which pushes her back into a situation. She behaves in a way which is normal for that organization and not right, and therefore not good for teams. So I suppose the point I'm trying to make is if you're in, if you're in an environment where you're having to collaborate um, with humans and that environment isn't an environment that allows you to do that or indeed incentivizes you to do that, people will have individual moments of a heart and feel it and get it and go, ah, that's going to change the way I do things. And then they get back into that operating model and they're without even noticing it's happening. Yeah. They're back into the command, control, data, information, statistics, you know, uh, bullying. All I'm, of the things that you kind of know that it's not, as you say, it's common sense. We know really if we stop for a second and think what's the right way to be as a human, if we want to achieve our full potential and to allow the people around us to achieve theirs. So the operating model, the operating system, having something that's always on between your practice and mine, um, having an architected, um, which is why I'm building beep, of course, having an architected, always on operating system, which is there just to remind people that this is the way we behave here. Yeah. And yeah. that makes it easier for those individuals it, it to does. be able to remember. Oh yeah, of course. And I think that the framework, the create framework and whatever are beautiful, um, pointers of what is symptomatically obvious when you're in the right quality of mind. Right. But because to your point that you've just very well made is that not many of our systems are set up like that. Right. You have to keep nudging, reminding. Ah, ah, ah. Now, when people have a fertility, they're very happy to be nudged and go, yep, got caught, caught out for a little bit. Yep. Great reminder. Thank you very much. I'll pop back into that way of being because it is the most sensible way of doing it. Right. Yeah. So I think the frameworks are, are very, very helpful when people have had the core realizations because they just help nudge them back. Um, but where there will be less valuable, I imagine, is where someone's still stuck in their very uh, self-aperture and really that they may pay lip service to the framework or they may try and resist it or whatever. Oh, of course. It, it, it doesn't work. So to me, where I've gone in my work, so probably for 10 years, I was what I would call um, covertly trying to get people temporarily into a better state so they could have better thinking by doing tools and techniques, appreciative inquiries and serious play and all the facilitation techniques, you know, right? Boom, 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 boom. And yes, wow, great. And then they probably then would drift back into their contraction again, um, which would just be, oh, gosh, so sad to see kind of thing. It's happening, right? You've been there, yeah. What I do now with quality of mind and what we do is we try and start to get people to have their own meta ahas realizations about the nature of the system i mean the human system first consciousness yes. and then their organizational system yes so that the things that the create framework points to are just like yeah of course and occasionally they still need a little nudge of course they do because we're going to get caught out but starting with the soil and getting the soil really fertile so things like create can be a light touch rather than come in and try and reverse a system that's yeah. also kind of systemically flawed so starting with the human being, because I think that's the place to start and actually starting with this over-reliance on the self, this, this innocent, invisible, mistaken identity that we've got, that we are the self and we're not, we are something bigger than that, that has an activity of consciousness that is called the self. And when people have their meta ahas about that, then you start to see things change. Now. It works much quicker and easier in a small organization. So I've, I've got a client, we know they've probably got 15, 20 people and they've all had some of the ahas and woo, they're sailing, right? Now, when you're working with a big org, you've got a long way to go. Yeah. Um, but you've got to start somewhere, I guess. Yes. 
Well, well, unless you want to become a dinosaur. Yes, and and become extinct. Yes. Um, or because... anyway, I always say you've got the choice. You you can either be a talent magnet, yeah. where people will want to be with you and want to stay with you because they feel good and they can be themselves. So you know the terminology. I know they can. You know they feel they've got. They're doing things where they're rewarded and respected, and and that they're making a difference because, of course, purpose is very. Very, very important to human beings. Or you can, you know, talent magnet. And, and by the way, people will leave you in their droves. And I do have, were we talking about this before we started recording about this? Yes. Madness that people have where, you know, on cynicism, you know, but if you do this, you're disrespecting people because you're not hearing what they have to say. You're not really understanding how they feel about this. People will leave and they'll go, well, let them leave. And I'll say to them, so, who do you think will leave? And they'll go, oh, the ones that don't like it. And I'll go, let's think that one through again. Who do you think will leave? So if some people are good and they can easily get a job and they're feeling uncomfortable, I'm guessing they're going to leave, right? Well, yeah. Okay, so what you're saying is your best people are going to leave, leaving you rather than with A stars, with Bs as your A's and everything. That will keep going on. What you end up with is the people you do not want in your organisation. Yeah. Oh. So yes. Yeah. That and, way lies the dinosaur. And that way lies the dinosaur. And at one level, where well, they go extinct, and they need to go extinct. So you know that you you kind of have a chance. Um. And and I also think, and this is just a personal view, uh, of course, is that people that do sort of what you and I do in the area of consulting, coaching, helping organisations, it's very easy for us to get sucked into giving an organization what it wants, not what it needs, right? Because we, we've got to put bread on the, on the table and, and that kind of stuff. And so to give the organization what is comfortable to the organization and just sort of nudges it along a little bit, rather than knowing what we know that will really serve them, even if it's not what they initially want, because otherwise we're just perpetuating the problem. We're, we're, we're feeding the monster in a way. Um, this, this is exactly why I try to spend a lot of time working with people to understand the current state. So we'll, uh, as an example, um, say, what do you think is happening? So we'll do like a survey where we'll ask the leaders what they think is happening. And then we'll do a survey and ask the teams what they think is happening about those same, same questions. Inevitably, those two things will not be the same. So we'll, we'll uncover stuff and just say, look, this is a problem. And then thereafter, all of the stuff we do is about what their people are saying. And we're bringing people together to surface challenges and to find solutions and to have their own aha moments. So it's really about us saying, look, we're not doing anything. All we're doing is providing a framework to allow people to tell you where the problems are and for people to experience that because it's not for us to say what the truth is. Every single person inside your organization knows what the truth is. <laughs> yeah. But what is and isn't yeah. working. All we do is provide a listening, like a, a risk radar, if you like. Yes. Yeah. And I think that you, you, you've got to start there because otherwise you're just going to be doing it on their agenda, you know, on the wrong people's agenda. Yes. But I think even when you've been there, it's, it's almost knowing that the way you, you, you can solve that in a very sustainable way, or you can, you can, sort of tactically solve it yes right yes. so oh we'll give people half a day's resilience training because they said they're not feeling you know mental health fit off right yes that might or, or we set up a well-being room you know or, or whatever it is right or we'll give them a little bit of coaching now oh, we'll start doing we'll start doing massage once a week for everyone wow that's yeah. amazing so that means they're going to be doing massage for half an hour and then they've got to go back into your incredibly broken operating exactly that's an antidote for the toxic oh, culture but... we're going to fix it with a little bit of training and coaching now we don't work now well i don't work now with organizations that won't at least be curious to see what the bigger fix if i'm calling it that is if they just want a tactical solution no because that's to me is i'm perpetuating the problem right yes. um now i didn't know this 10 15 years ago I, I was innocent in what i was doing but now i do know better and i i feel there's a real and it's not for everyone's cup of tea yet because they're still too stuck in their self but we're, we're going to start to see more and more that our solutions need to be different 
right? Mm. And that's an obvious statement to say. And the way I think one area of that is going to be looking at what we are as a human being. Now, you might think, what's the workplace got to do with that? What everything. Being. But, but yeah. it's, as you say, it's blim and everything because your business is people. Yes. Directly or indirectly, it is people, right? So unless you get to, to really understand how that works, you're going to be symptom fighting. You're going to be, you're going to be having molehills coming and going into mountains the whole time. Hmm. So I think you're, you're spot on to say we need systemic change and the systemic change has to come from a shift in realization about what business is and what every business is, is a social network of people. And, and I'm going to add to what you just said, because I think you're right. We need a realization based change on what business is and, and which is about being a social network of people. And we actually need to, to say and have a realization about what people are. Now, I know that that sounds odd, but it's what I was saying, we were saying earlier about the self. We are not this separate self. If we think we're that, then there's always going to be them and others, us and them. There's always going to be a confrontation between, well, there's myself and their self. If we can get over this fact that our sense of identity is ingrained in ourself, if that is the appearance, I get that, but it's not what we truly are. Then when that, that emergence of change being obvious, it doesn't even feel like change. It's just what, it's just what happens, right? It, it happens through us as vessels. That's what we need to, to have the meta realizations about. That will then change business and organization. And that will then also have an impact on everything in society. So it, it might sound quite profound, but it's an eminently practical and it's within everyone's, everyone's gift to realize this. It, it really is. And I, I say it's not some sophisticated, highly developed. No, it's the opposite of that. When we get, when we can pull away the, the narrative of the self and just see this, just pause. And, and we did this in three days with people, you know, doesn't take a lot. They can get a sense of this and they're like, oh, wow. How come I didn't spot that before? And it's the most, at the moment, the most powerful thing I know that will, will make a difference. So, um, and that's why you, you said earlier, something about common sense, um, mm. common sense. Have I, have I told you this, you know, you have those aha moments where you're trying to kind of make sense of your own world. Um, common sense, what a throwaway statement. But if you think about it within the context of, say, a global organization, or in fact, a smaller organization or a public sector organization, who cares? But one of these aggregations of humans, common is something that's shared between one or more people or groups. Shared. Sense is a means by which you can sense changes and react quickly to those changes in the external environment. So common sense is a really massive concept when you're thinking about the way that your corporation should be working, small or large, because actually it means that everybody is working together, constantly sensing for shifts and being able to respond to those. That's a deep concept. Well, it, it, do you know what though? And I'll say it in a slightly fancier way, probably unnecessarily. It's we are one consciousness, right? Yes. So. Of course, there's blimming common sense, right? Because we are each other. We are the same, right? And you know, before we were talking about that blend and fusion between the impersonal and the personal, right? Common sense is a, is a synthesis of that, right? And it occurs to us through obviousness. It's just like, oh, yeah. And then someone else in the room is going, oh, yeah. Now, earlier that day, those two people did not have that aha and that common sense, right? And then they did, right? So common sense, you're, you're right. It's, it's a very ordinary word that's pointing to something fundamental about what we are. The and, I, and I also think nature's living us, you know, so no wonder we have it. And possibly the way that it's become so throwaway, it's common sense. <laughs> because of our kind of deification of the importance of rational individual um, a deification of the individual superhuman that we all think we should be. That's the problem, right? We are all ordinary yeah. and spectacular at the same time with no differentiation, right? We, we, we've deified this superhuman that is hyper productive and hyper everything. No, if someone does get on that wavelength and that, that, that the wind is blowing, 
that's just because they're out of their own way and the self is out of the way and nature's living through them in the most expressed way. Yes. Right. And actually, if you ask people who are exceptional at what they do, they are usually incredibly humble. And they will say things like, when they get interviewed after something, they don't really know what to say. They've just been brilliant, right? But they feel the interviewer wants them to say something profound, like, oh, it's because of my training regime. Or you know, so <laughs> they, they actually don't really know how they did it. I remember Ben Stokes, the cricketer, he did this amazing last wicket stand in the uh, England World Cup. And it was just phenomenal what he did. And afterwards, he came off. He was so, like, in the space. He was being asked, how do you do it? And he went, oh, oh. I just hit the ball or, or, or something. He said something really like, you know, I just hit the ball when it came, basically, which is what cricketers do. They hit the ball. Okay. There's no fancy strategy he did. He was just, he just did it. And he was, it was no Ben there. It was no Ben Stokes doing it. He was just in flow. He had time on the ball. Off he went, right? That's it. He got out of his own way. He got out of his own way. And that's, that's what I hear when I'm listening to your humans leading humans on there. They're talking about times when, they just felt that that impersonal come through them, right? They th that vibrated with the people they're working with. Some emergence came through, and whoosh, they're away. Right? Then the self mind owns that, conceptualizes it, narrative it, and does its thing with that. But that's okay. Wow. You strip that back, you're seeing the essence in all of the stories you're hearing. There's still the essence, the golden thread of that self getting out of the way. Exactly right. And that's it. This has been absolutely amazing and I've completely gone over my time. I know. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. It's been beautiful. And thank you for the invite, Piers. I've really enjoyed it. All right. Take care. Speak Bye. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and want to know more, check out our website at qualityofmind.biz and also feel free to reach out and leave us a review or a comment. Until next time, have fun being curious.